0: Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your kindness, and we thank you for the word that you have given to us. I pray that you'll help us to understand from your scriptures, that you'll help us to grow, and that you will speak to our hearts today. Open our minds and our eyes and our hearts that we might See and understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually, I was very impressed by uh, how the Lord had worked things out. That what we heard in Sunday school actually has a lot of bearing on what I'm going to be talking about today, especially at the end. But I wanted to look at last week when we looked at chapter 8, it was a review. And I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but there are three very important things that chapter 8 said. First, Jesus is a better high priest because he was appointed by the Father. Second, we live under a better covenant based on better promises because he performed a better sacrifice. And third, we have a better relationship because He has written His law in our minds and hearts. And notice I'm using the word better here a lot. It's because that's a lot about what Hebrews is. Hebrews is, if you will, a comparison and contrast between what happened in the past under Old Testament law and what is now happening under New Testament. And here He's saying everything about Jesus is better. Our scripture reading this morning looks at the tabernacle, again, according to the pattern given to Moses. This pattern was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Starting in chapter 9, verses 1 through, verses 1 through chapter 10, verse 18, we will be looking at the details of some of this about how Christ's offering is better than the offerings made under the Old Testament. And I'm doing things a little differently this week and next week um, in that we're not going to go verse by verse like we have been doing uh, because the way this is broken out, it's broken out into three main areas of thought. And I wanted to look at it this way, that there are three things that we need to to see. Those three things are that, hang on, I got a little ahead of myself. Um, These three areas are first of all, the place of the offering was in heaven rather than on earth. And secondly, the blood of the offering was Christ's own blood rather than the blood of animals. And three, the offering of the heavenly high priest was eternal and only needed to be done once, where the offerings of the Old Testament priests were being continuously performed. So those are the three things we'll be looking at in these chapters. And as we looked at chapter 9, verses 1 and 10, one thing that stood out to me as I was reading it and preparing for this message was that there is a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And if you remember, the holy of holies is where God manifests his presence to the nation of Israel. And this holy of holies was behind a veil. In other words, God was separated. God was partitioned away from them for their protection. God is pure and holy. And for them to come into his presence, defiled and sinful, would mean death. Pure and simple, that's the way it was. So we see that in the Old Testament this temple, this tabernacle and again, it later was the temple at the time of Jesus but at the time of Moses' pattern it was a tent, a tabernacle. And the author of Hebrews now says that Jesus when he presented his offering he presented it in the heavenly tabernacle. Now the Hebrew priests were offering their sacrifices throughout the year. And the high priest offered his sacrifice once, every year, for the sins of himself and of Israel. And Hebrews 9 eight to 10 says it this way. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. When the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In other words, all these offerings that they are performing They were shadows of what Jesus did on the cross. They were a picture of what Jesus did. They did nothing to cleanse from sin. And then he goes on in verse 10, and says, "...since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." And Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, 18 gives us these reasons, and I mentioned them earlier. Of these three reasons that I mentioned, the better place, the better offering, and the better high priest, I'm going to be looking at the better place today. So in chapter 9, verse 11... The author of Hebrews says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. This is in stark contrast to what was described in verses two to five, which say, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which was called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was the golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Notice here, which is rather interesting, the author of Hebrews does not give any physical description of the heavenly tabernacle. He doesn't go on and talk in detail about what was there. As a matter of fact, the only description that we could possibly say of this temple was seen in Isaiah's vision when he saw this temple, this holy tabernacle. Isaiah 6, 1-5 says this, In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled, and the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. This is the place where Jesus presented his blood as a sacrifice for my sins and your sins and for the sins of all. This is a place so holy that when Isaiah got a glimpse of it, he reacted by saying, Woe is me for I am ruined. Or as the King James says, Woe is me, for I am undone. This is a place so holy that to even look on it was something that would make any sinner react the same way. Isaiah would not have survived this experience if it were not for God's grace in cleansing his lips with a live coal from the altar. This is a place that will not tolerate any sin because it is in the direct presence of the Father. This is the place where the Father invited Jesus to sit at his right hand. And this is the place where we come before God in prayer. That's a sobering thought. When we come to God in prayer, that's where we go. When we skip down to chapter 9, 21 to 25, we will see that the heavenly tabernacle is not like the Old Testament tabernacle, which needed to be cleansed with the blood of animals. He says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with the better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with the blood that is not his own. And then Hebrews 10, 11 to 17 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those things, those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart. I will, and on their minds, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This heavenly tabernacle where Jesus presented his sacrifice is the very throne room of God. This is where he sits, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. This speaks of a judgment to come for his enemies. But God continues with the promise that He would put His laws on the hearts and write them on their minds. This is actually a repetition of the promise quoted in Hebrews chapter eight. This quotation comes from Jeremiah 30 to 30. 30 I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It's a little confusing the way it's written because there's a repetition there. Sorry about that. But in Jeremiah, as we remember, or if, if we don't, I'll remind us that God called him to preach judgment to Israel because of their idolatry. God told him, I'm going to send the kings of the north to judge you and to take you away. This was a message they did not want to hear. And even though God called Jeremiah to preach this coming judgment, he also told him to include these promises to give them hope for the future. So even in God's judgment, he says, I am not done with you. I am still working on your behalf. You know, the scriptures say all things work together for good to those that love God. Everything, even when he disciplines us. This hope that Jeremiah preached was fulfilled when Jesus came and he preached the good news that his kingdom had finally arrived. When Jesus went to the heavenly tabernacle to offer his sacrifice, He made the way for the Holy Spirit to come down and to come into our hearts and to be His laws written on our hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit is living inside of us. He is the one that helps us. He is the one that instructs us in His law and His way. This is part of that promise that we read in in Hebrews chapter 8 last week that we saw that he is writing his laws on our minds. And John, chapter 16, verses five through seven say this. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking about the fact that he is getting ready to be crucified. And he says this, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Again, this is part of this fulfillment of this prophecy in Jeremiah. When Jesus died on the cross, he provided the way for the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell us. And as he provided this way for the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us, he was fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy. And this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at here. That his law is now written on our hearts. His law is now there. If we listen, and if we obey, we will walk in His law." Back when the priests were performing the Old Testament sacrifices, the location of the temple was actually a very important component of their worship. It was where God was. It was where he manifests his presence. When Jesus confronted the woman at the well, she asked him about this very important issue. John 4, 15 to 24, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. This is after he told her, if you knew who you were talking to, I would give you living water. And her response, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Again, she didn't fully understand what he was talking about. But he said to her, go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you people, that is Jews, that's who Jesus is. She says, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. So there was this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews where it was proper to worship God. And she was asking this question because this was a very important question back then. Where is this location of worship? A lot of times that's something that we think about and we see, where is it that I'm worshiping? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. When Jesus answered that question, he did not equivocate. He told her straight out, you don't know what you're worshiping. We do because salvation comes from the Jews. He then continues by telling her that the time is coming and now is when true worship will not be on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And this is key, when we worship the Lord, it's not at this church or any earthly location. When we worship the Lord in spirit and truth, we are coming before him in his holy tabernacle. When we pray, when we worship in spirit and truth, our eyes may see the trappings of this building that we're in. That's where our bodies are, but where our spirits are, is in communion with God at his throne. We are truly in the heavenly holy of holies. So again, it is a new location for our worship. It's a place where we cannot see. R.C. Sproul, in our Sunday school class, talked about Jacob's ladder. And how Jesus said to Nathaniel, right? Nathaniel. Um... He said to Nathanael, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When Jesus died on the cross, he created a bridge between heaven and earth. He created a bridge for us to now worship in that holy tabernacle directly at the throne of God. He started, the, the book of Hebrews starts out that way in the first chapter when he talks about us going to heaven, or or him inviting us to enter in. And he's continuing, and now he's, he's saying it much more clearly and in more detail that we worship him in his holy of holies, in his holy tabernacle. And all this time I've been working on this message, there has been a question at the back of my mind. That question is, this is nice to know, but how does this affect me? Is this something I can use to impress my friends or maybe win a Bible trivia contest with? As I kept thinking on these questions, one word kept coming to mind. That word is... Reverence. You may say that's such an old-fashioned word. Nobody uses that word anymore. Actually, I was reminded of this word recently because it's, listen up, Connor. It's the 12th point of the Scout Law. The Scout Law says a Scout were... A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. The Webster's Dictionary defines reverence this way honor or respect that is felt or shown to someone or something. This is how we might think of the word today, but this is not what the Bible means by reverence. Fear is the root understanding of the words that have been translated reverence. As a matter of fact, one of the Greek words, we get the word phobia. Everybody knows what a phobia is, right? A phobia is an irrational fear of things like I'm afraid of spiders or snakes or whatever. Reverence was rooted in fear. Remember Isaiah's reaction when he saw the Lord. I am undone stark terror, because he knew he deserved God's judgment. He knew he was a sinner. And God cleansed him. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Paul reminds us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's reverence. It's not like if we do one little thing, God will strike us down. One little thing that's wrong, God's going to smack us down. He loves us and he went to great lengths to redeem us. Ask yourself, when all is said and done, do you want the Lord looking at you with disappointment in his eyes? When we come before the Lord in his heavenly tabernacle, are we just going through the motions? When we worship the Lord, we must remind ourselves that we are standing on holy ground. No matter where we are standing in our bodies physically, we are standing in that holy tabernacle. And God wants us to be reverent. God wants us to show him the respect. Our prayer life should not be for petty, trivial, selfish things. And our worship should not be glib. We should worship the Lord with true understanding of His holiness. Let's pray. Lord, you are a holy God. And we do not deserve anything that you have given to us. We pray that you'll remind us that it's your grace that gives us great joy in your forgiveness. But even in this joy, Help us to remember that we are worshiping a holy God. That we are standing in your presence as we worship you. Help us to remember that you truly want communion with us. And for that communion to take place, we must also obey the command, be ye holy, for I am holy. And we pray that you'll work in our hearts that we will understand what this holiness is. And that we will seek each day to be more like you, that we might be this holy person you have created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.